Nothing is more powerful for improving yourself than reading, and few things are more enjoyable. Besides the information you gain from reading a good book, you are, without even knowing it, building the capability to express yourself. That is not Mr. Rogers, but rather a secretive mega-billionaire named Charles Koch doing an advertisement for reading in 1995, a PSA for the Wichita Public Library. But Charles is also the CEO of a privately held company with annual revenues of over $100 billion. Charles Koch is an oil and gas magnate, a billionaire who has used his wealth to threaten democracy. He is an incredibly effective both businessman and and political leader who's had a significant effect on politics in this country. Charles Koch is one of the most important business figures of our time because of the size of what he's created economically and politically and the influence he's had. A secretive billionaire using his wealth to influence American democracy, overseeing a massive network of other billionaire political spending with connections to almost every other person we've covered on this show? Sounds like a great season finale. So, who is Charles Koch? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by telling the stories of people who have it. This week, Charles Koch, CEO of Koch Industries, the second largest privately held company in America, and the mastermind behind the Koch Network. In American politics, the name Koch means power, means money, means influence. But while some people are born into immense wealth, that doesn't always translate into immense power. So let's go back to where it all started. Christopher Leonard is the author of Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America, an excellent book on the Cokes and their company. The patriarch, Fred Koch, has four sons, Fred Jr., Bill, and the two you'd think of as the Koch brothers, Charles and the recently deceased David. Bill's twin. The four Koch brothers were raised on a really beautiful estate in Wichita, Kansas, uh, basically across the street from the Wichita Country Club. Uh, They grew up on wooded grounds in a beautiful classic uh, mansion. I mean, the Koch brothers were raised inside a walled compound as some of the richest people. I mean, They're obviously some of the richest people in the world, but they're very clearly some of the richest people in Wichita, Kansas. Ah, yes. The classic American story of being born in a beautiful mansion and growing up to scuttle any attempts to curtail the climate crisis. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Coke Industries was essentially started by this guy named Fred Coke back in the 1930s. And Fred was one of these tall, tough, old-school, very conservative guys who lived in Wichita, Kansas. And he owned some oil refining stuff, some cattle ranches, and, and he was a millionaire. Fred started to do business abroad in countries like, let me see if I'm pronouncing this right, Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany, building refineries that serviced both. He came out of the experience deeply critical of the communism of Soviet Russia, but oddly silent on Nazi Germany. 
he returned to an America he saw as incredibly susceptible to communist infiltration. But back to the kids. And as they were growing up, it was always understood, I think, that one of them would take over the company. And their father, Fred, engendered a really intense sense of competition between these boys. I mean, he literally would put boxing gloves on these boys and have them fight each other. So it was a pretty intense household where it was understood that you kind of had to fight for what you wanted. There is actually footage of the Coke boys boxing. It's on YouTube. And they're literally children throwing swings at each other. This might sound like super messed up abusive parenting, and it kind of is. But that competitiveness and value of work left an impression on Charles. Here he is in a 2016 interview with Mike Rowe the host of that show about dirty jobs. Dirty jobs. Yeah, my father uh, announced that he didn't want his sons to be country club bums, and, uh, and I had an older brother and two younger brothers. As a matter of fact, so I bore the brunt of it. Years later, I asked, me, I asked my father, why are you so tough, much tougher on me and my younger brothers? He said, son, you plumb wore me out. <laughs> But anyway, my first job was digging dandelions. As you know, you just can't cut off no, dandelions and they in. come right back. You've got to go dig down. And, and I could remember there's a swimming pool across the, the, the street from us, and I could hear my friends jumping off the diving board and giggling. Anyway, Fred also had a strong political philosophy, partially influenced by what he saw in Soviet Russia an understatement to say it was a politically conservative environment. I mean, Fred Koch, the domineering patriarch, was a founding member of the John Birch Society, which was a secret society of, of very far-right people who believed that the federal government had been infiltrated by communists. And we're talking back in the 50s when Dwight Eisenhower was president. The Republican former Army General Dwight Eisenhower was considered a communist by the John Birch Society. I mean, so this is the level of, of, of conservatism in the Koch household as they were growing up. This is what the family dinner table conversation would have been like. I have this pamphlet that Fred Koch actually produced back then, and what you see is a view that the federal government is really off-base, even evil, very destructive, and is a real enemy. Charles, along with two of his brothers, goes on to MIT and kind of takes the opposite path of a kid rocking a Che Guevara t-shirt and reading Abby Hoffman. Charles Koch is an incredibly bright guy. He went to MIT, as his father did and as his brothers did. But Charles Koch at MIT, he got three graduate degrees in engineering, one of them a nuclear engineer's graduate degree. I mean, this is a bright guy. And he comes home and studies political philosophy along with economics. And Charles Koch takes his father's conservative ideology and, and kind of evolves it a little bit. He makes it evolve. And Charles Koch studies these very libertarian economists like Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek. And these Austrians wrote these books that were kind of a reaction against fascism and Soviet totalitarianism. And they had the view that basically the only way to organize human society is around market principles. And you can't have a government. And when the government tries to intervene, uh, it only creates big distortions. And that basically even things like collecting taxes 
are a form of thievery. So, how does someone who thinks that the market should control everything, that man is entitled to his own earnings and nothing more, square that with his, spoiler warning, eventual massive inheritance? Well, Ludwig von Mises says that there are these kind of special types of human beings that are these entrepreneurs who invent new things, create new wealth, and drive the human enterprise forward. They're sort of like, I don't want to say supermen, but these kind of nodes of creation, these entrepreneurs. And I think the view is that in a society, and this is their view, you have to let the people who earn money keep money. You have to let the people who earn millions keep the fruit of their labor and let them reinvest it appropriately so that it continues to grow. And that when the government intervenes with an estate tax, it's taking resources away from the people who generated it and earned it and giving it to people who don't, if you will, don't deserve it. And you're creating a distortion. So I think the view is that Fred Koch was one of these entrepreneurial types that von Mises talked about. And if he passes on his fortune to his kids, well, that's fair game. And if his kids make more money with it, good for them. If they lose the money, well, they lost the money. But it would be inappropriate, according to this view, to intervene and take that money through an estate tax. That's a fairly anti-democratic perspective. But anyway, Charles must have really liked Boston. Weird. Because he didn't want to go back to Wichita. Charles didn't really want to work for the company. His dad basically guilt-tripped him into coming back home. And Charles tried to live his own life out in Boston, but he was kind of pulled back into the firm, if you will, and starts working in the shadow of his father, which he never really wanted to do. But then Fred Koch in November 1967 goes on a hunting trip and dies of a heart attack. And at that time, Charles Koch was either 32 or 33, really young and president of the company and is suddenly in charge of everything. And I will add this, A through story of Charles Koch's entire life has been his determination to prove essentially that he was worth the inheritance, that he is in fact a builder, not just a kid who grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth, but somebody who inherited a massive organization and then expanded it, that he inherited wealth and that he greatly multiplied that wealth. He's been working to do that his whole life. Charles didn't just inherit everything. There was a lengthy family feud for the fortune and control of the company. I don't want to go into their whole sibling rivalry, but lawyers, hidden recording devices, private investigators all get involved. It got really ugly. Like, family schism never speak to each other again ugly. But what matters is that Charles ended up on top. Nobody talked about David Koch. He was not a player in this corporation. He was described to me as being essentially a silent partner, if you will. And then even when you start getting into the political machine here in Washington, D.C., where I happen to live right now, you know, I I interviewed the lobbyists who work for this company, the political operatives who'd bounce back and forth between the corporation and the think tanks, etc., They all talked about Charles Koch. Rarely ever did they talk about David. So the picture that emerges is that Charles Koch was really the guy who designed and ran and operated the corporate machine and the political machine. And David Koch 
the most consequential decision I think he ever made in his life was to kind of form a truce with Charles during that legal fight and get half the company. And Charles let him stick around, but Charles was definitely running the show. Much like another conservative icon, Scott Baio, Charles was in charge. Charles Koch moved to essentially build an entirely new enterprise. I interviewed these guys who worked with Charles Koch at the time, who were still around. And I mean, within weeks, within weeks of taking control, Charles Koch had written and was executing an entirely new game plan for this corporation. His dad had run a kind of motley assortment of all these different things, and Charles Koch fused them all into one corporate structure, starts shedding things that are unprofitable, keeping what's profitable, and getting everything moving in one direction, which was to grow. And he starts teaching everybody his business philosophy and really laid the groundwork for exploding the corporation in size almost right away. And what it means is he's been able to shape this institution, Coke Industries, to conform with his vision of how not just corporations ought to be structured, but how the world ought to run. I mean, this guy has really turned Coke Industries into his sort of mini laboratory for creating a free market utopia. And the results have been pretty astonishing. I mean, this company's annual sales are bigger than that of Facebook, Goldman Sachs, and U.S. Steel combined. It's, it's a really massive company. Do you own things? If you answered yes, dirty capitalist, you probably have multiple items Coke Industries produced in your home. Well, the company itself is a sprawling industrial conglomerate that specializes in very, very complex processing functions that, that are, are, are basically one step removed from the products you and I buy. What I mean by that is, you know, about half of Coke Industries purchases refines and sells fossil fuel products, crude oil. That's how the company started, was really a lot of fossil fuel holdings and assets, which just kicked off a ton of cash. And Charles Koch has always had this philosophy that he plows most of the cash back into the company so it can grow. So he sort of added these big chunks, these big components to the fossil fuel business that build on what Koch does well. For example, they bought some of the most massive nitrogen fertilizer plants in America. Now, nitrogen fertilizer is something that you and I think we don't really purchase. It seems like an obscure product. But nitrogen fertilizer is literally the foundation of our modern food system. So if you eat food, Coke Industries is making money from that uh, purchase somewhere along the way. Uh, Coke also owns Georgia Pacific, one of the nation's largest paper and pulp companies that makes paper towels, brawny paper towels, Dixie cups, but also the framing, the, the wood framing, the particle board, the insulation materials that are in office buildings and homes. Coke owns a company called Invista that makes synthetic petrochemical-based products and fossil fuel-based products that are in clothing. So elastic band in your kids' diapers or uh, Lycra pants, spandex clothing, exercise clothing. Coke makes the fabrics in those. Uh, the company also has a massive, and this is what was so fascinating to me, honestly. They have a massive financial unit, a trading desk. 
that really rivals any of the trading desks on Wall Street run by J.P. Morgan or anybody else. Coke has a huge trading desk in Houston, one in New York, one in Geneva, one in Moscow. It's kind of this global network of high finance trading operations where it's constantly buying and selling commodities and these very fuels that it sells. And then on top of actually buying and selling real physical supplies and flows of oil, it's trading in these futures contracts and derivatives and the sort of really exotic high-risk stuff that you associate with Goldman Sachs. Coke is one of the biggest players in that market. So, I mean, taken together, what you see is a massive industrial conglomerate that has a hand in the activities of almost every single American who drives to work, wears clothes, works in a building, and yet their brand name's not on any of it, so people don't really know that when they spend this money, they're spending it with Coke Industries. Simply put, Charles Koch is one of the most powerful people in the world. That sprawling interconnected business plays into what Christopher told us earlier. Charles wants the United States to be run like Koch Industries. So when did he first begin to get involved in politics? In 1974, Charles Koch goes to Dallas for a political event and gives a speech that outlines his future political strategy. Quote, The important strategic consideration to keep in mind is that any program adopted should be highly leveraged so that we reach those whose influence on others produces a multiplier effect. That is why educational programs are superior to political action, and support of talented free market scholars is preferable to mass advertising. End quote. Charles believes in the power of ideas. In order to move American democracy his way, he needs to introduce ideas that align with his philosophical viewpoints and his business interests into the broader discourse. We'll come back to that later. In 1975, Coke Industries is hit with a massive government fine over oil price controls. This is a company that was bumping up against the federal government all the time and clearly just sort of furthering Charles Koch's antagonism toward the federal government. And I haven't even brought up the criminal investigations that happened in the 80s and 90s, which would have exacerbated it even more. In 1976, regulation of political spending began to change. And the Coke machine may have had a hand in it. You've probably heard of Citizens United, but you may not have heard of Buckley v. Vallejo, a Supreme Court decision that opened up political spending with a similar First Amendment argument that you'd see decades later in Citizens United. Notably, it opened up spending on one's own campaign. If you're running, you can support your own campaign as much as you want, because money is speech. And self-funding has echoes among certain candidates in the 2020 Democratic primaries. In February of this year, The Guardian reported that the Kochs subsidized the legal effort that led to Buckley. It paid off. David Koch is the Libertarian nominee for vice president in 1980. And thanks to the Buckley decision, he could spend as much money as he wanted on his own campaign. Here's David speaking at a Libertarian rally. I'm very, very confident that our campaign in 1980 will result in our establishing the Libertarian Party as a viable, permanent alternative to the uh, worn-out, bankrupt policies of the Republicans and Democrats. I'm confident in, that in 82 and 84 and so on, we will elect many people to office. Our ideas will become widespread, greatly accepted, and we will find tremendous success in future years. 
Thank you very much, everyone. That, if you haven't been paying attention, did not happen. While the Libertarian Party may have presented a near-perfect ideological match for the Koch's free market ideals, it just wasn't viable. And that unsuccessful experiment may have led David and Charles, especially Charles, to begin building a political organization of their own. I've written about this guy. I've, I've interviewed people who've worked with him since the 1970s. And he really has had many projects, many strategies that he's been working on for 40 years. And one of them is a massive political project. Charles Koch is an extremely libertarian guy who believes that the government can essentially only do harm, that, that every government program creates more problems than it solves. And he's been patiently building a political program to make America much more libertarian and to strip the powers of the federal government. And, and he's been working on it steadily since 1974, at least. So it, it's, it's just, you know, the, the length of this tenure has allowed him to accomplish a great deal. Now, I'm going to throw to an ad, but... First, I want to make sure y'all understand something about our advertising and how it works. You may have heard some political advertising on previous episodes of this show, but I assure you, if you don't hear my voice reading the ad, it means neither I nor the show had any choice over what advertisements were aired. This show is about power, and it will continue to be, even when the powerful buy ads with us. How funny would it be if after all of that, that was just an ad for, like, fried chicken? Anyway, I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the show where we examine power by telling the stories of people who have it. This is our season finale, but don't worry, I'll be back soon. More on that later, but first, is there someone you definitely want to hear about next season? Tweet at me at SNMRRW, or email me, Sean, S-E-A-N, at nowthismedia.com. I'm also looking for a good chili recipe, so if you have one of those, also feel free to send it my way. Anyway, back to Charles Koch. Now, I don't want to compare what the Koch network does to a crime. It's all very legal, and that's part of it. But if I've learned anything from watching USA Network's Psych, you need to break down motive means modus operandi, M.O. Motive, turning America into a free market utopia, means a massive business that generates billions of dollars. That leaves M.O., how they did it. And it's not as simple as just giving politicians big sacks full of money. By money in politics, most people think about campaign contributions and elections, and that's certainly a big part of how money can shape political decisions. But it's not the only one. And in fact, a lot of academic research suggests that it's not even the most important one. We also have to think about the ways that money can buy ideas, uh, whether at universities or think tanks, how money can buy relationships with lawmakers, and how money can make it easier or harder for people to run for office in the first place. My name is Alex Hurdle Fernandez, and I'm an assistant professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University, where I study political economy in the United States. We can learn a lot by looking at the main organizations that the Kochs have supported over the years, starting in the 1970s, which was about when they started getting involved in politics. And the very earliest initiatives that were supported by the Kochs uh, tended to revolve around libertarian 
uh, ideas and policy research. And it was at that point that they created and supported organizations like the Cato Institute, the Mercatus Center, and the Charles G. Koch Foundation that fund scholars based at universities and think tanks to come up with libertarian philosophies and policy research that could then be applied to the political process. Starting in the 1980s and 90s, you saw the Kochs adding to that portfolio a number of more traditional policy lobbying efforts, supporting most notably Citizens for a Sound Economy, which was in the 1990s and early 2000s, essentially a pass-through lobbying group for businesses that were worried about regulation coming from state governments or the federal government. So for instance, when tobacco companies were worried about state regulation or federal regulation of their industry, they turned to Citizens for a Sound Economy to create astroturf, if you will, protests of citizens that were protesting these tobacco regulations and paid for lobbyists to meet with members of Congress and state legislators to oppose those rules. Similarly, you saw dirty energy companies protesting against environmental rules that the Clinton administration was considering at the time, a tax on energy. But Starting in the 2000s, I would say, and adding to the existing ideas organizations and policy lobbying organizations, you saw the most significant shift of the Koch network, which was to move from simply these single-issue organizations or pass-through organizations to an integrated political operation in the form of Americans for Prosperity. And here, they took Citizens for a Sound Economy, as I mentioned, what had previously been an astroturf sort of pass-through group. and turned it into an organization that in many ways looks like a political party. It has local field offices in many counties by now in many battleground counties that we're going to be hearing a lot about in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida, state offices, and of course their national staff. And in those offices, they have both paid staff and volunteers who canvass for votes, contact elected officials at the local level, at the state level, at the national level. And they also accompany all of that with a big war chest of campaign contributions that they can direct towards their favored political candidates. What unites the Koch network? Shared priorities like tax cuts and rolling back regulation on oil and gas, the Clean Water and Clean Air Act, or basically anything the EPA does. Despite what Charles Koch may say, shared priorities make Trump welcome at Camp Koch. So a lot of people have looked at the surprise election of Donald Trump in 2016 and taken it as evidence that big money doesn't matter in American politics because people like the Kochs but other wealthy Republican donors either disliked Trump or even outright opposed him. And I think that's the wrong perspective, especially for the Kochs. Of course, Charles and David at the time spoke out publicly about their distaste for Trump, but their network, Americans for Prosperity, still went out and knocked on the doors of, I think, over a million American voters, asking them to turn out for Republican state legislators and state governor races. And I have to think that in turning out voters for all of these other races to vote for Republican candidates, they were turning out voters who would end up casting ballots for Republican Donald J. Trump over Democrat Hillary Clinton. And then once 
Trump was elected, the Koch network established close relationships with the Trump White House through Vice President Mike Pence, who has had longstanding ties to the Koch seminars. The Koch's theory of political change, they put ideas at the top of the pyramid. If you want to change American politics, according to the Kochs, they believe you have to change the ideas. You have to come up with new research. That research then gets fed into the political process. And it's only at the end of the chain that you see politicians being part of the Kochs model of change. For them, politicians are vessels who carry ideas. And it's good to have politicians who are allied with your causes, but they don't necessarily feel any great debt to any one particular politician. In fact, the Koch network has a surprising model, organized labor. And dismantling organized labor has been one of the Koch network's major priorities. They took inspiration from the labor movement when they were building Americans for Prosperity. They wanted an organization that was like the unions and that they had grassroots members that could canvas, get out the vote. But they also wanted organizations that were involved in election campaign contributions and lobbying efforts, and importantly, that were federated, that had a presence at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. And that's what unions did. But they've also recognized that if they prioritize anti-union reforms, they can make it harder for Democrats to win and hold elections going into the future. And therefore, it's no surprise that when Americans for Prosperity chapters are strong, and particularly in states where AFP is strong and you have a big presence of ALEC or the state policy network, you see Republican-controlled governments doing everything they can to weaken unions, especially in the public sector where unions remain strong. So Scott Walker, for instance, famously made it his first priority to kill public sector labor unions and then once they were weakened, go after private sector unions. And you've also seen similar actions in Iowa. As soon as the Republicans got trifecta control of that government, one of their first priorities was a surprise bill that weakened public sector unions above all teachers unions. And you've seen right to work laws pass in recent years in states like Indiana and West Virginia, and even Michigan, the home of the modern industrial labor movement. This gets complicated, but right to work laws are important. By passing right-to-work laws, Republicans and conservatives can put pressure on unions. And as I mentioned before, unions are an incredibly important force within the Democratic Party, turning out voters, collecting campaign contributions and investing in campaigns, and educating citizens about the political process. And if you weaken unions, it turns out you hurt Democrats at the ballot box. And I've done research with collaborators James Feigenbaum and Vanessa Williamson that shows that when right-to-work laws pass, Democrats tend to do worse in presidential races, in state gubernatorial races, in congressional races, and turnout as a whole goes down. In addition, when these laws go into effect, state policy and politics tends to move to the ideological right. And you just see across a host of measures that working class voice in politics is weakened. And that shouldn't come as a surprise, given what we know about how much unions are involved in promoting working class political participation and supporting the Democratic Party. Speaking of political participation, here's maybe a political ad or maybe just an ad for CBD cookies. Who knows? By creating a network of businesses, nonprofits, think tanks, political action committees, lobbying organizations, analysts, and more, the Kochs, with the other uber-rich in their network, are able to exert an enormous amount of influence on literally everything. That's important. This isn't about Democrat versus Republican, liberal versus conservative, progressive versus centrist. It's about the difference between what the American voter wants and the priorities of the donor class. 
there's a big puzzle in political science, and I would say American politics right now, about the rightward lurch of the Republican Party. We tend to talk about partisan polarization, the two parties pooling away from one another. And we see this in the ways that members of Congress behave, the ways that politicians behave. But it's very important to note that this polarization or separation of the parties hasn't been symmetric between the two parties. That is to say that Republicans have been far more polarized and become much more ideological than Democrats have. Democrats have surely moved to the left, but not as much as Republicans have moved to the right. There are many Republican politicians who are pursuing policies that are even further to the right than what their voters would want. I would point to climate as being one example. Large portions of conservative and even Republican voters are concerned about what's happening with climate change and would be supportive of taking action. I'd point to the minimum wage, where large majorities of conservative and Republican voters would be supportive of increasing the minimum wage, of even union rights to some extent. You get large portions of Republican voters who are supportive of making it easier to unionize and in particular supporting public sector unions. But on all of those issues, Republicans have moved to the far right, intensely opposing any effort to regulate the environment or address climate change, opposing any and all increase in the minimum wage or other labor regulations, and ruthlessly trying to weaken the labor movement, both in the private sector and in the public sector. This is really highlighted when it comes to the climate. Coke Industries is fundamentally extractive, built on an ability to suck resources out of the earth and pollute. Here's Christopher Leonard. Coke is one of the largest polluters in the United States. And it's not just because they're rampant criminals. I mean, we all, in a way, are complicit in the fact that we still have a fossil fuel-based energy system. That's a policy decision. And it puts a lot of toxic waste into the sky and into the ground. Coke is deeply enmeshed in that. People thought the Democrats were going to rule the world for 50 years when Barack Obama became president. And one of his key efforts was to contain greenhouse gas emissions. And the House passed a bill to do it. The Senate started considering a bill to do it. Coke Industries fought that effort with a militancy and a lack of compromise and a determination to just burn down any effort to contain greenhouse gas emissions. It was a militancy that was unrivaled and definitely not matched by your other big fossil fuel companies, I mean, even the ExxonMobil's and the Chevron's of the world were more conciliatory. Sure, they fought it, and yet they kind of backed away from funding these climate denial groups. And Exxon made noises that some people doubted here or there, that they might support a carbon tax, if you will. But Koch fought it in a profoundly uncompromising way just put it this way, I have interviewed people that said we would have passed a law limiting greenhouse gas emissions if it was not for Coke Industries. Climate change is very real, and no matter how they try to define it, and no matter how they try to deny it, and to fund all these groups to say it's not true, I think there is a deep growing awareness across the political spectrum to the horror of Charles Koch that His days of denial are numbered. Okay, sorry to nerd out about this a bit, but that's Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, an independent nonprofit journalism outlet that's been broadcasting for decades. And you see this time and again with the Koch brothers. They understood well, and especially 
when it comes to pipeline politics, when it comes to global warming, that they had to affect the public discourse at every level. So it was not only state legislatures. It was not only city councils. It was the creation of think tanks, of foundations, of PR companies, every which way to really model itself on the tobacco industry, right, when it was absolutely known that cigarettes cause cancer. The tobacco industry for decades knew after a while they couldn't absolutely deny that. So let's just obfuscate, they would say. You can't absolutely prove a connection between this cigarette and the person who has lung cancer. And they use that same model when it came to climate change, this critical issue that they have had such an enormous effect on. They would say, you cannot prove that this hurricane was caused by global warming. Here's where the network part of the Koch network comes into play. When you have money in a lot of different organizations and they start to reinforce each other, it looks like that it's not just one organization that's casting doubt on climate change, but it's many. Well, it actually isn't. It is a few forces that want you to believe something that is simply not true. So if you have the Koch brothers funding the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation and then PR companies that can roll out their reports and the Heartland Institute and other organizations, it makes it look like that, oh, there are those groups that believe, for example, that climate change is real and a threat and there are those groups that don't and it's a legitimate debate. I talked about how Charles presents all this, as if his vision for politics is a vision for a better world. But his vision for politics seems to line up really well with his financial interests and his company's interests. What about everybody who isn't a billionaire? Middle-class employees today are working harder than they've ever worked. They're incredibly productive. And they're simply earning less money than they were 20 years ago. I mean, that's just a fact. It's just a fact. The middle class isn't just treading water. They're losing ground. And it raises a big question as to why. Well, I'll tell you why one reason that's not the case, not that people are lazy or unproductive. They're, they're the opposite. And I spent a lot of time at a Coke Industries facility in Portland, Oregon, which is a giant distribution center warehouse operated under the Georgia Pacific brand. And I document how these Labor union workers are really crushed over years under the grinding heel of this push for more profits and more productivity. And I I got these guys' labor union contracts going back to the 70s, and I, I worked with a human resources expert who shows these distribution center workers are earning less money today than they did in the 80s when you adjust for inflation. And at the same time, I had somebody inside Georgia Pacific share with me 10 years worth of internal safety data, which shows that the workplace is becoming more dangerous every year. Uh, Workers are being killed on the job. And that's because, in part, they're working longer hours. They're exhausted. I've interviewed, have on the record, folks at this distribution center who would work 30 days in a row, 10 hours a day, and just be at their wit's end with exhaustion and get hurt. So that's the kind of harm. And what's interesting to me is how this harm can happen when everybody in the situation kind of thinks they're doing the right thing. There's this very pure ideology of some of the Coke managers and owners that 
They're simply obeying the commands of the market and putting resources where they need to be put and eking as much productivity as they can out of the system. And then you're seeing people get hurt and paid less in that system. And so in my view, it really reflects where we are today in America. And that's the fundamental problem with Charles Koch. Like the company he controls, Charles has built an effective political machine that has been very successful at realizing his political goals. Whether or not you agree with his political goals, the system we live in is supposed to be a democracy or a republic, but let's not nitpick. More and more, especially after fellow billionaire donor and former New York City mayor Michael Bloomberg literally bought his way into the 2020 campaign, it's starting to look like something else. An oligarch is someone who has an outsized amount of economic resources that they can also translate into political power. And in the context of the United States, we might think that there are millionaires and especially billionaires who have so much economic wealth that they can build political organizations and institutions that allow them to have an effect on candidates, politicians, and policy. An oligarchy is a political system in which those oligarchs run things. Is that where we are today in the United States? We still have institutions that um, provide mechanisms for ordinary citizens to cast their ballots and their votes. But I do think there's been a concerning trend over time, especially over the past three to four decades, of wealthy individuals having more and more outsized influence over the decisions that are made by American government. On the other hand, money in politics has corrupted every level of our society. More and more donors are controlling the politicians, or I should say, donors are becoming the politicians. I mean, have we ever seen something like this, the number of billionaires who are running for office or the level of money that is controlling politics now? I just think that across the political spectrum, there's a massive resistance to this, a gut instinct that this is bad for democracy. It's important we question the commitment of people like Charles Koch to democracy. There's no question that if you look at the Koch company, that it's very tightly held, a family-owned business. They didn't go public because they didn't want to answer to stockholders, let alone the public. And that is, I think, the model of operating that they would like to see in the world. I don't want to say a model of democracy because, of course, it isn't. They see democracy as a threat to their interests. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this show, it's that there is nothing good about the power of money in politics on either side. The power of money in politics, how it has corrupted um, what is taking place in this country, whether we're talking about the lack of health care for everyone in the United States, whether we're talking about mass incarceration and what is fueling that, whether we're talking about weapons manufacturers who are making a killing night na- right now, figuratively and otherwise, because of the endless wars we're engaged in. This is what's at stake when we decide whether money should be the determinant of who is engaged in politics. Money in politics is kind of like climate change. It's overwhelming, and it feels like 2020 is this big existential moment. Like we have one last chance to take the exit ramp, save American democracy, and maybe even the planet. So what can you do about it? And where do you start? There is a force more powerful. And it is people joined together, 
I always think that it is the public, it is people joining together, it's democracy that will prevail in the end. I think a lot will hinge on on the extent to which Donald Trump feels he's unmoored from the institutional Republican Party if he's reelected for for a second term. More generally, I think a lot will hinge on the extent to which new social movements that are happening. I think about the teacher strikes, for instance, but I could also think about the Sunrise Movement. To the extent to which these social movements are successful in replacing politicians and getting them to pay attention to issues like climate change in the case of the the Sunrise Movement and greater support for education, in part through higher taxes, in the case of the teacher strikes. I think the only answer to people not being satisfied with candidates that are out there is people running themselves. And that starts at the local level and city councils, on school boards. I mean, you work your way up. And, you know, each town, each community, it is that community's governance system that young people should be involved with. I mean, you can take on the system from outside and inside. There is so much that gets decided by local government on taxes, public resources, education, health, and especially at the state level, that just goes completely unnoticed by so many voters. You look at public opinion and polls and the number of people who can name their state legislator or even tell you what party is in control of the state government is just so woefully low. And yet they control so many important decisions. And so that is a key place to start. If you're a young person who's concerned about the direction of this country, the fact that we aren't taking action to address climate change or skyrocketing inequality, you should be focused on the next presidential election. Certainly that's going to matter a lot, but so too should you be focused on the races that are happening in local and state government. I think people are understanding across the political spectrum that our democracy is deeply threatened. It is drowning in money, and a very few number of people have more wealth than the vast majority of people in the world. And that is a threat to all of us, considering the direction that they are pushing in. And I think the pushback is so critical right now. And that ultimately is the hope. Wherever you are, if there's something happening in your community that you don't agree with, get out there. It might sound corny, but democracy needs you. And more importantly, it doesn't happen without you. This brings us to the end of the season. But we'll be back. It's an election year, and I'm going to tell you about some of the people up for election in November. And more importantly, some of the billionaires who pour money into the system. From Michael Bloomberg to Jeff Bezos to the people you haven't heard of who affect your everyday life. It's Who Is, Season 2, coming soon. And thank you so much for listening. A sincere thank you to our guests, Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, Alexander Hurdle Fernandez, Assistant Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, and Christopher Leonard, author of Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, Senior Producer and Writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and Mixing by Will Stanton. Additional research from PJ Evans. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, and Margot Wall. 
Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, Nancy Hahn, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. And special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. If you like the show, please tell everyone you know. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. I'll see you next time.